what is still here, regardless of the experience or where your wandering attention was? What didn't wander? Where is home? And have you ever been separate from that? Awareness, the final frontier. These are the explorations of Jonathan Robinson and Brian Tom O'Connor. Their continuing mission, to discover fresh new paths to the mystery within. To seek out new joys and new methods of awakening. To boldly go into the heart of expanded consciousness. This is Awareness Explorers. Welcome back, Awareness Explorers. Great to have you. I'm with my good friend, Brian Tom O'Connor. How are you doing, Brian? Excellent, Jonathan. I'm so looking forward to today. We're both very excited because many of you will know the spiritual teacher, Gangaji, and her teacher, Papaji. But before I introduce her properly, why don't I give a bio for those of you who might not know her background. Gangaji was actually born Tony Robertson and grew up in Mississippi. In 1990, Gangaji met her teacher, Sri H.W.L. Punja. Many people know him as Papaji. Today, as a teacher and author, Gangaji speaks to people from all walks of life, inviting them to fully recognize the absolute freedom an unchanging peace that is the truth of one's being. You can reach her at gangaji.org, which is G-A-N-G-A-J-I.org, where she does monthly online gatherings, and she has her own podcast called Being Yourself. And we are thrilled to have you here, Gangaji. Welcome to Awareness Explorers. Oh, thank you. Really happy to be here. Well, you know, um, I met Papaji, as I mentioned to you right before we recorded in 1992, and he had a major impact on me and you and so many other mm. people. Mm. For those of our listeners who don't know your background, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to meet him and what happened mm. when you met him? Mm. I love it. It was the end of my story of suffering. Uh I, like many people in the Bay Area at that time, was interested in spiritual matters. I realize now, in retrospect and looking back, that I was just trying to be happy. <laughs> I just wanted to get something that would save me for myself, that would take away my suffering, which is legitimate, and I assume most people listening to this can relate to that. I had tried different avenues, and I had found a, a very good life. I was in a good relationship, a good marriage. I, I had work that I loved. I lived in a beautiful place. And yet, there was something still calling me, or something uncomfortable deep inside. And I didn't know what to do about it. I. I had tried different traditions, primarily Buddhist tradition, but I had dabbled in other things. And and so I just knew I had to pray for help. Hmm. And I was also praying for a teacher, which I had never seen myself as a, certainly never seen myself in relationship to a guru or never seen myself as looking for a teacher. 
I thought the teacher was everywhere. I thought the teacher was Mount Tamalpais or the ocean. Mm-hmm. And that's all true. And definitely, as Ramana shows us, a mountain can be your teacher mm-hmm. for life. But I was missing something. And so I just had to tell the truth about that. And I prayed for a teacher. And by a miraculous set of circumstances, Eli, my husband, met Papaji in uh, Lucknow and started writing me these letters telling me how incredible this teacher he had found, who we had heard about because uh, one of his students was having satsang in Marin County then. And so he just said, you've got to come. This is it. This is what we've waited for. He's the real deal. So I made preparations, and I went to see him in April of 1990. And at that time, he was uh, still at his little house in this little lane in the middle of Lucknow. Oh, no, I, I beg your pardon. This was in Hardwar. I first met him in Hardwar. And then later I would visit him, and he was still in his little house in Lucknow. But this first visit was on the banks of the Ganga, so it was incredible. He was there because by April it was already too hot in Lucknow for him. So he was in Hardwar, and I just knocked on the door. We were going for tea, and he opened the door. And he was this presence. He's, as you know, he's a very was a very handsome man. Then he was in his 70s, and he just said, Welcome. And I felt it. I I knew it was a sincere welcome. I'm from the South, so I know there's like, hi, y'all come in, happy to see you. (laughs) But this was like really this wave. And I was so profoundly moved. And I said to myself, this is my teacher. Hmm. Since he was my teacher, I paid very close attention to what he was saying and he told me to stop, to be still. And when I got, he was seriously telling me that, I was horrified and terrified, terrified that I would lose all of my attainments and all of my capacities that I had developed for self-awareness, for meditation, for being happy. And he said, yes, it's good, lose everything. You have to finally lose your enlightenment and lose your unenlightenment and see what's left. So then the rest was just a deepening of that discovery and that moment of losing everything, recognizing what cannot be lost, what's always been here and is here, regardless of whether my mood is good or bad or I'm happy or sad or angry or optimistic or pessimistic, always underneath that, there is this radiance that is beingness, that is who we are, each of us. So he asked me to to share that with you and to anyone who's interested. And when he asked me to go out and share it with people, I, I truly thought he'd made a mistake. because I had never read Ramana Maharshi in any depth, and I'd never heard of Advaita Vedanta, and 
I said, oh, Papaji, I, you know, I don't know the teachings. And he said, excellent, that's just what I want. Then you will <laughs> only speak from your direct experience. You won't speak from something you've learned or memorized, or you won't remember what I've said and say it just like I said it. So I felt he threw me out into the ocean, and I had to surrender. Hmm. What a wonderful uh, and inspiring <laughs> summary. Mm. You, and and I just I've always been wanting to to meet you and tell you this that you and of course Papaji's teachings were so instrumental mm. for me. Maybe I'm not sure. Maybe 15 or 20 years ago, you used to have a show on a public access cable channel, oh. and I used to watch it every week. And one episode, this was my first taste of. I guess other people would call it awakening. I prefer to just call it happiness for no reason. <laughs> My first taste of that was you were talking and you said to Papa, you said that Papaji asked you a question, what if you had no intention? Mm. And this laughter started bubbling up. At first it was because, oh, isn't having no intention an intention? I thought that was funny. <laughs> but then something dropped deeper and something totally relaxed when I didn't have an idea of changing anything. And so all these years, I wanted to thank you for that. <laughs> well, this is a thanks. Just that recognition. That's, mm -hmm. I'm very grateful to hear that. Hmm. I'm curious, you know, you were the first maybe female teacher that I knew had a wide audience and that was easily, you know, aware of your satsangs and, and your teachings. And I'm wondering if you, what that was like for you. And also, do you feel like women come to awakening slightly differently than men, or is it the same process for everyone? That's a great question. Well, I'll answer the easy part of that question first. That what it was like for me, it was uh, I was thrown into the middle of the ocean, and e even if I could swim, I, I could meditate, I could say what I had experienced. You can't swim long enough to get out of the the depth of the ocean, so I had to surrender. Mm -hmm. I remember. Um, when I the meetings first started getting big, hundreds of people coming, and I walked up one day and I saw all these pairs of shoes because people often took their shoes off before they went into a meeting. And I realized they weren't there to see me. They were there to hear the truth mm -hmm. and the truth as I have experienced it. And they were there to, to be confirmed in that. And a great weight lifted off me then because before that I wanted to represent Papaji accurately and respectfully and I wasn't interested in playing a guru role although I, I appreciated psychologically how projections can be useful for mm -hmm. a while so it was it, it's it's been my teaching to teach has been my teaching because mm -hmm. if there's any identity with the role then that's not being true to the teaching. <laughs> right. So it's been wonderful. It's been a, a great gift and a privilege, and I'm eternally thankful 
to Papaji for many things and, and definitely this aspect of teaching. But the whole whole question of um, being a woman teaching and the fact of women teaching, and, and clearly it's there are many more men teaching than women. Mm-hmm. I think that's just our model, you know, whether it's the model of God as a man or the protector. It's a very deep-seated model, and certainly there have been beautiful women teachers in India and and all over. But maybe the process is different. Uh, I've always seen myself as not, not a feminine type woman. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was a tomboy growing up and and so I, I felt myself uh, more androgynous than female. I love my female aspects and I definitely love them as as a young person. But I also was a tomboy and rough and and I Papaji recognized he said, you're very competitive. And I mm. said, oh, that's right. I'm so competitive. He said, no, no, it's a good thing. <laughs> it's uh-huh. a good thing. You'll swim harder. You'll you'll go for the mark. So in that sense, I think it it's really important that we all recognize both aspects of the feminine and the masculine within us. And that this teaching from Papaji and from Ramana is really about surrender and about opening. And so that's a very feminine invitation because that's procreation. I mean, we have to surrender to have to have sex, to have a, an insemination that grows to a baby. We have to open and surrender to have a baby. And those are very particular experiences that I think men can discover because I don't see men as, as not aspects of the female we're all all of it but maybe it's easier for women to first just surrender just open Mm -hmm. and there are other challenges that come up after that and so men uh, many men i've spoken to have really appreciated the the hurdle that was there for them and it was not a hurdle that they had to jump it was a hurdle that they just had to fall back and open to. And their their inclination and their training, their socialization was to jump, to overcome it, to to get mm-hmm. the prize. And so there, there are differences. And advantages and disadvantages for each sex, it sounds like, or each type. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the disadvantage for everybody is the identification with the body or the sex, the gender. Mm-hmm. Because we are identified. I mean, that's that's what we mean when we say, I want something or I'm going to get something. And and I'm not making that identity wrong. And I see how fluid it is now. But there's a way that there's, there's the obstacle of identity. That when you really surrender to yourself as a male or a female, and then you really surrender to what this inner identity is and then you really surrender that so that you have no identity or right. at least a, a moment <laughs> mm-hmm. then then we are here uh, so the shift of identity into something 
from the particular individual to universal consciousness is also a step that can also be surrendered. It sounds like that's what you're saying. Well, finally, I mean, Papaji used the word stop to me, but people often hear stop as some kind of punishment, you know, stop, go back. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it it's just recognizing that any identity, spiritual identity, worldly identity, enlightened or unenlightened identity, requires some kind of narrative and some kind of imagery. And then we we fit ourselves into that. And in that, we overlook the oceanic qualities of our true identity. Mm -hmm. There's room for identities, <laughs> but there's much more than identity. Right. You've been uh, you've been at this for a long time now. <laughs> Thirty I'm years. Yeah, <laughs> I'm wondering what shifts you've seen in terms of how people approach awakening, or what is moving or changing that uh, feels like it's it's different than it was thirty years ago. Well, thirty years ago, thirty years plus ago, people that I knew had never heard the word satsang. I, I know that there were some sects that used the word satsang, but in general, nobody had heard of it, because in general, the counterculture was really influenced by Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And so it was such a Buddhist strain of thought, and and as beautiful as Buddhism is, there, that was still a religion. So there was a religious way of being. There was a right way and a wrong way. And there was the, yeah, you know, I mean, we ate in beautiful Buddhist restaurants, but the servers would be, maybe they'd taken a vow of silence. So there was um, a ritualistic aspect. And that was true in, in most meetings. When I went to see different uh, Buddhist teachers, primarily Tibetan Buddhist teachers, we learned to chant in Sanskrit or Tibetan sometimes, but we didn't know what the words meant. We didn't, it wasn't in English unless we became scholars and studied the Sanskrit or Tibetan. So to meet a teacher like Papaji and then to bring that teaching and just to be speaking in the vernacular, just the common language was, I think, a radical change for, for people. Mm -hmm. the, the, there was no quoting from the Upanishads. There, was no, there were no phrases. It must have been like when Martin Luther started speaking just, well, I, I don't know if he went from Greek to Latin or to German, where he, he spoke or he posted his bands in the common language. And... And that's really important for a, a recognition of the universality of what's being offered, that it's not just being offered to priests and nuns or, or practitioners of a particular sect or those who've learned particular mantra or those who, who do prostrations, that there is something closer than all of that. Mm -hmm. So that was a shock for people. and. 
Certainly, I got lots of challenges, which was very good, and I needed challenges. That's what was appropriate. But I would say now that it is it has entered the vernacular, that people are very at ease just speaking directly without referencing their awakening to a book or a poem or a, a particular teaching. They People are, are freer just to speak from their direct experience. And that was always the point of my speaking to them, to discover what is your direct experience, not what you should be feeling, not what you want to be feeling, not what you think is bad that you're feeling, just what is here, what is now, who are you? And and talking from direct experience reminds me of Something I, I watched on a video of yours on YouTube, I think it was called Limits of the Mind. And a woman was talking about what she knew and what she understood. And then she said, um, but, and you said, don't say but, fight <laughs> it. And it seems to me that's such a common thing for people. They, they talk about what they feel they understand, and then they say, but. And Oh, it is so I, common. I'm wondering if, if everyone should just, <laughs> Stop believing anything that comes after the word but. You know, really, I mean, I appreciate the analytical mind, and that's a way of of really saying, yes, that's relatively true, so let's see if if it holds up. So the but can be useful, but it's when you're talking about your direct experience, if you don't put qualifiers on that, then you're able to more directly experience what you're experiencing. Yeah. I was just a man from Germany was recently here in a small group retreat I did, and he remembered that in Germany when I first started doing meetings, they were very large because that was right when Osho had died, mm-hmm. and Osho had told his students find a living master, and so they. They found Papaji, and they heard of Gangaji, and so they came to these meetings, these satsangs in Germany. And it was amazing, because I, I would say whatever I had to say, and they would reflect back to me their direct experience of that. And then they would say, Ya Abba. And I learned very quickly that that means yes, but. Gangaji. <laughs> Ya Abba. And <laughs> that that was a theme that I recognized really uh, a kind of trance that had to be exposed and broken for people. That if you just stop, you don't follow the yes, but the the counter argument, that this is not a debate, that this is an invitation to experience your direct experience and then discover. What is under that? If if we yes, but it we we think we're being deeper, but actually we're being more superficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I uh, went to see Papaji in 1992, and I didn't know anything about Ramana Maharshi, so uh, I entered what was his living room, as you know, and he immediately told me to sit in front of him. So I don't know the protocol. So he looks at me with his joyous, exploding eyes, you know, and and says, who are you? Well, I didn't know what to say. So I said, I'm Jonathan from the United States. And of course, he and other people laugh. And um, I thought, well, that was the wrong answer. Uh, Let's (laughs) 
so then I said, well, I'm, I'm a, a seeker. And he kind of shakes his head, you know. And we did this for a minute or two where I went through all the roles mm -hmm. that I identify with. And then I realized maybe silence would be better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, I have a wonderful experience of opening mm -hmm. in a very deep way. But for people who don't have the papaji to ask that question and to feel that silence what what methods do you do you suggest that people can tap into their their true nature uh besides who are you which of course is a great method as well who are you is a beautiful question of inquiry and i fully support inquiry but it becomes like most words that we overuse it becomes rote and mm -hmm. it's who am I? You know, and you know the right answer. Right. <laughs> you, it's not your first day. You learn the correct answer. I'm the, the eternal presence. And it is the correct answer, but it's absolutely incorrect if you don't experience that. Mm -hmm. So I really try to direct people into just discovering there is a, a direct experience, and then there is a narrative about that direct experience. Because we're so attuned to the narrative, we often follow the narrative as if it were reality, as if it were the direct experience. So even a superficial experience like feeling anger or irritation, not even anger, you feel irritation, we have a narrative about that. We're righteous in our irritation because somebody cut me off and the freeway or we oh i shouldn't have feel that I let them do what they have to do i shouldn't feel this and we get caught up in our internal conversation and we don't get to experience the depth of what is here even if it starts as something superficial as a, an irritation in the willingness to experience that without the narrative about that without good or bad judgment just to for a moment, be absolutely, completely irritated. And without a narrative, irritation can't last, but it can reveal something deeper. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's true anger, maybe fear, maybe bliss, and finally, it may be this radiant, unspeakable, indefinable presence mm -hmm. of your own being. Do you sometimes suggest that people just follow the sensations moment to moment so that that leads them to, well, not even leads them, that that's just a, a good approach to being present. Well, that sounds like Vipassana to me. And I, I mm -hmm. thought that was a beautiful practice. I went to a couple of Vipassana retreats in Joshua Tree and before I met Papaji. And, you know, other than having to sit there for an hour, I thought it was a beautiful, a beautiful reflection to just follow, you know, just to turn inward is really what that is. Mm -hmm. So I'm not teaching people a meditation practice, though, really. it's For me, it's more important just in your day-to-day -day activity. I support meditation practice. I I meditate every day, and I let people know that, and it's it's just healthy. It's healthy for the body, mind, just like brushing your teeth and eating correctly and sleeping enough hours. It's, it makes sense for this creature that is here. But it's 
really simpler what I'm inviting people to do. It's, it's in an instant of feeling something in particular. If it's something that you habitually feel, that you, you feel in, in a way that is unnecessary suffering for you and maybe for others if you act it out, to be willing to, to stop when you feel that, to stop the narrative about it and to feel it fully really reveals something underneath that. Under anger is usually fear. I mean, that's mm-hmm. why we have anger, is some kind of protection. Rightfully so. I'm not anti-emotion. This is really just using in particular habitual emotions that appear. And then under fear. And if you're willing to really experience your fear without the narrative, well, something is coming to get me, or I've got to get over this, spiritual person is not fearful, just putting all of that aside and opening to this raw fear, really of what it means to be a living creature, that often reveals something deeper, which can be this existential angst at being alive and knowing you are going to die, a kind of despair. Mm -hmm. And this is where most people immediately go back into the conversation or even to a conversation about existentialism rather than just experiencing that, the aloneness, the everything that we've been running to get away from, Mm -hmm. like the monster in the dream. That's really to wake up in the dream to turn and face this monster of inadequacy, of, of finally being nothing, the, facing death. Mm-hmm. That, that's what it is. But it's death not in a, a momentous way. It's in a, a, or it is momentous at the moment, but it's in a regular, just in a regular life. Something gets triggered. And there's an opportunity to experience that and what's under that, what that's nested in. And that's inquiry for me mm-hmm. in, in terms of a modern day, because I feel like the who am I question or who's experiencing this or who's afraid, these questions, when they were fresh, were like gems of aliveness, but they've been made a part of a religion, Advaita Vedanta religion. Mm. And so they they become techniques. And really the invitation is to stop all techniques. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a matter yeah. of fact, I remember you wrote in, in Freedom and Resolve, I, I think it was something like, oh yeah, you write that practice is a bad translation. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I stand by that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess people, you know, everything that you just described is often what people come to a practice like meditation to avoid, to That's not right. do. And you're saying just the opposite. Go into yeah. it. Experience yeah. it directly without the story. That's it. That's really it. That's direct. And that's Papaji's way. His, his way, you know, as you know, <laughs> Jonathan, with just when you were right in front of him, he just could laugh at you or ask you a question. Or his transmission was right there. This mm-hmm. transmission was a transmission of who we all are at the core. 
And so we each have the capacity, if this is what we want, if we are drawn in this direction, we have the capacity to discover within ourselves this indefinable truth of being. Mm-hmm. Of course, this could get misused, like everything does. I mean, every word gets misused, every every invitation gets misused. I finally had to stop saying, just stop, just be still, because I realized that's so misused. I heard somebody saying to someone else after a meeting, oh, just stop. So <laughs> they already incorporated it as a holier-than-thou mm-hmm. kind of weapon to use on someone. So we have to be aware of that, that our minds corrupt words of freshness. And if it's not fresh, then throw it out. You don't, you can't get freshness from garbage is something Papaji would say. Mm -hmm. You can only find freshness in itself. Mm -hmm. When you met Papaji and had this awakening, was there a, a prolonged integration process, or what can you say mm-hmm. about integrating, call it the 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 silence in one's being into this uh, crazy material world we live in? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, my integration process was being thrown out into the ocean and mm-hmm. <laughs> having these meetings with people. But really, when I recognize this indefinable and nonverbal direct experience of myself, I recognized it as absolutely familiar. Mm-hmm. This, this didn't come into being in that moment. This was revealed as always having been here. And I had read uh, some spiritual books, and I had always just sort of scoffed at teachers who said I was born awake or I've always been awake. But it was a recognition of awakeness is always here. Mm-hmm. Me as Tony or as Gangaji wasn't born awake. This me had to not know who I am and open to the discovery of who I am to discover what has always been here, who one is. And that's, you know, happens differently for different people and the challenges that follow that, because the mind will challenge that. There will be a yes, but in some form or another, because our minds have been socialized and trained to be live in a certain way, live in a certain society. And even if we have rebelled against that, in general, we've rebelled in a certain way and live in a certain rebellious society, mm-hmm. which I had done in the counterculture. So there's a, it just has to be a willingness to, to recognize when these habits of mind appear, or vasanas appear, or old ways of defining oneself or other or life appear as they will to just be willing to open to what is underneath that, to stop the narrative, because the narrative can just be incessant. It's like unplugging the TV. So unplugging the TV and then experiencing what was triggered or what was invoked by a particular narrative 
you know, the the narratives I hear a lot from people are narratives of worthlessness. I'm no good. I'll never make it. I failed. Occasionally, hear the other end of it. I'm better than everyone else. But those aren't usually people who are coming to meetings. So it's a willingness, first of all, to overhear yourself that you have a narrative, mm-hmm. because the narrative is so close to our identity that we often don't even recognize they're actually sentences that are directing us and supporting us or not supporting us and feeling a certain way or taking a certain action. And we are so identified with that narrative that we think that's who we are. We think that's just our voice speaking experience or God's voice or our mother's voice. And so to recognize that we have the capacity to unplug while awake. I mean, we know we do it every night when we go to sleep and it's bliss. But to unplug while awake, to stop, to to just be still, as Ramana said, be still and recognize what is here that doesn't need a narrative and what is here regardless of the narrative. That's freedom right there. It's freedom from from your narrative and the narrative that was imposed on you by your family or your schooling or your society or your rebellion against all of that. Mm -hmm. So that's the offering, is this offering of freedom. Mm -hmm. That is so beautiful to me. Uh, That's that's it. Uh, That we can, I mean, your encouragement that we can notice what is in our experience without the words running through our heads. There's plenty. In fact, everything. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's revolutionary. I felt that with Papaji. This was revolutionary, radical, in a way that maybe had been said to me by some teacher or in some teaching that I had read. But I, if it had been said, I hadn't heard it. Or if I had read it, I hadn't understood it. And it's to make it so clear and understandable because it's who you are. It's who I am. Mm-hmm. It's already here. I have a uh, somewhat embarrassing personal question. <laughs> Some people, such as yourself, that met Papa G, were very much transformed by that experience, really forever. And some people like me had a very deep experience there and then went into the wild world of Lucknow and rickshaws Mm -hmm. and hotel rooms and and lost that Mm -hmm. experience and have been, uh, you know, it comes and goes. And why, first of all, why, why does it like catch fire and move through somebody more deeply? And for other people, it's, it's a slower process. Uh, what's the difference that's happening there? It's a mystery, isn't it? Yeah. I never heard Papaji give a, an answer to that question because it was raised in his meetings and he would always say it's a mystery. But also he would say, what, what is still here, mm-hmm. regardless of the experience or where your wandering attention was? What didn't wander? Mm-hmm. 
where is home? And have you ever been separate from that? Because I definitely had many moments after being with Papaji where I didn't feel in bliss. I mean, it, it wasn't, the bliss was incredible, So, but it wasn't the bliss. It was, the bliss was an offshoot of a discovery. Mm-hmm. And I had to discover that in, in lots of different situations. That's the integration that you were asking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And Papaji had said to me, you have to be vigilant on, until your last breath. And I got that. I, I knew that. And I was, at first, I was very vigilant about my thoughts. And I would just not allow myself to just get carried away with a narrative. I just would come mm-hmm. back. And so that was vigilant for years. And then I remember before he died, I said, tell me about vigilance. It's been years now. He said, vigilance until your last breath. And I realized that somehow I had been holding that as a a, a kind of a punishment, you know, like a whip, mm-hmm. vigilance, you know, pow. Whereas it was really this, this reverence and this at the feet of this discovery is keeping vigil at that. And mm. that is, that's a great joy. And in that joy, well, you know, you were in Papaji's house, you know, he was a human being and he had moods and he he was playful and sometimes he wasn't so playful. And he was in an, an aging body that was not comfortable a lot of the time. And so he was a human being and he had human frailties as human beings had, but he understood this vigilance and this capacity to not punish yourself with it, but to call yourself home when you Mm -hmm. start to lose the thread. You know, that Greek myth of the person who, maybe it's Ariadne, who gives Theseus or somebody the thread that helps him get through the maze if he had dropped the thread at any place along the way, he wouldn't have gotten out of the maze. So it's it's really holding to that in the lightest way possible. But that's joy in itself, this keeping vigil. So, you know, I, I would say to you, Jonathan, find out what you haven't lost, mm-hmm. what didn't get lost in the drama of Lucknow or the drama of the world. And... And be true to that. Be true to the truth of who you are. I love how you said keeping vigil is like a, a whole other way of looking at vigilance, that mm. it's it's the sweetness and the being called home versus the, you know, why are you thinking again or why are you lost in this again? <laughs> exactly. Those are very different energies. Yeah, exactly. it's, very, it's so similar to what you were talking earlier about the, the male and female principle, because, you know, vigilance we think of as this thing that's very strong, that it's about control. But mm-hmm. you wrote, um, yeah, there's always an invitation to more deeply surrender. This mm-hmm. surrender is vigilance. <clears throat> and then yes. you also added, be vigilance. Uh-huh. And, and it's a, just it's a totally different it's, <laughs> you know, and it doesn't, you don't have to either be a man or a woman to have this, but it is a more open, feminine way of being. 
instead of the there's something out there I'm going to go out and I'm going to get and I'm going to use all my strength. It's something that you sort of drop or let go of or or relax into. It's beautifully said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, opening. Open is the key. And that's the, you know, in death, our bodies open <laughs> in the sense that they are being transformed and uh, creatures are now consuming them and 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 that we don't have the life force to to fight. So Papaji often invited people to meet their death, to to really in this moment die to a future. Mm-hmm. And in that there is this direct experience of of what is here, what doesn't need me, this meanness, to be here, and to recognize that I am that that is here. So the feelings and the emotions and the experiences of this particular body are unique, but the life force is is omni rather than unique. And that's that's where it's true identity. So we always have an opportunity to to investigate, to inquire, to discover that, and then the opportunity to be true to that. That's the challenge and that's the bliss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that way of putting it, uh, the, the omni versus the unique. <laughs> Is there anything that we haven't asked you that you would like to mention or talk about or feel called to share? It's so full. No, I I feel you both. And it's, it's really wonderful in this mm-hmm. Zoom universe that we can see each other, but it, something that's actually transferring from one to another in this meeting is, is really precious. And, and even and, the, the transmission through you or through our true nature of Papaji's presence, you know, yes. uh, that's the great thing about satsang is you start to feel that energy and that opening. I have a great picture. I hope you can see it. You you probably, yeah. oh, this yeah. is in Lucknow, right. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't quite capture his eyes. His eyes yeah, were, well, that's true. were always sparkling. Yes. And, you know. I love the picture because he's in this stance of welcome. Yeah. And that's like, and this, you know, he doesn't have his teeth in. And so his smile is particularly soft and gentle. Mm-hmm. So, and I remember the moment too. <laughs> mm. So. Oh, great. Anything you'd like to add, Brian? And uh... You know, I, I, I do have just one more little question. Um, and this, I've, I, I ask, I've, I ask this of many, many teachers, because sometimes this seems confusing to me and others. You once wrote, in the willingness to experience totally who you think yourself to be, you'll discover that who you think yourself to be, in truth, does not exist. Mm-hmm. Who, who you think yourself to be does not exist. But what if I think of what, what it is to be me? What if, what if to me, who I think myself to be, is my body? I have the, you're not saying, does the body not exist what is it well, that doesn't exist 
what it is is that doesn't exist is that object in your mind when you see you say my body as we know people have these uh internal views of their body which can be totally opposite from what they are that's why we have so many eating disorders among people male and female because they they have an object in mind and that doesn't that's made up they don't rarely do we see our bodies because our objects our mental objects are so socialized or conditioned by our parents or our genes or our schools or whatever all the influences on us that we we have these objects in our minds these views of our body what we see in a mirror and the way it gets translated through our brain into an object that's it's just not true <laughs> it's not reliable that's why to me it was so great when the the uh, impressionist and the expressionist and the, and the modernist like Picasso and and before him Monet and it, it just showed a, a, this shifting kind of reality that was actually more accurate and the colors you know if you this neurological experience is not uniform standards of beauty whatever it may be whatever is internalized and then objectified is not is not truly true <laughs> it's it's personal i would say oh thank you so much for that answer <laughs> i just so felt it just as you were saying that wow <laughs> brian you're so beautiful <laughs> yeah, i'm wondering uh gangaji if um there's a way that you can guide our listeners into a brief experience of of uh presence or whatever you want to call it i don't know i don't know a term to call this nowadays uh they all become cliche after a while i know that's it the nameless one well let's see where it goes i don't have anything pre-planned but i i would like to um to at least support people in recognizing the capacity to overhear themselves so we can start there and mm. So yeah, it's a guided meditation if we just take these few moments and just recognize that as our breath expands, the whole body relaxes more. There's more attention that can be given to certain functions. And maybe as your body relaxes and as your mind opens you can be aware of something that you tell yourself some narrative that's familiar to you and you can either say it to yourself now or remember it and in that you're remembering the words of something you say to yourself. It doesn't matter if it's something good you say to yourself or something bad you say to yourself or if it's something you say to yourself about yourself or about someone else. It's just a, 
an exercise to see how we can internally see the narrative, the sentences that compose the narrative, the words that compose those sentences. So if right now you just said a simple thing to yourself, that's something you say all the time. So I'll, I'll say it to myself, and then whatever you say, you can follow along. So if I say to myself, this feels good, I can close my eyes and I can be aware of the sentence, this feels good. And then I can be aware of the sentence falling back into its place of origin, which would be my brain, your brain. So I can see this feels good, just dissolving back into the spaciousness of intelligence. Maybe as we've been talking, another sentence has arisen for you. The same way. First, you are aware of that sentence, that narrative. It may even be more than one sentence. And you let it collapse back into its source. And with your attention, you follow that collapse so that your attention is simply and deeply aware of itself as attention without even needing the word attention or its reality. As another thought or narrative or sentence arises, just be aware of it for a moment and let it fall back immediately back to where it came from. You can be aware of the easefulness of this. It's not a task. It's not a contest. There's no judgment. There's just the possibility of recognizing and rather than following, allowing it to come home, to fall back into consciousness. At any point, for a few seconds, you can do this. It's not a meditation practice. It's an invitation, a possibility. You can recognize in this day later, if some familiar emotion appears, you can recognize is there a thought that goes with this emotion? 
it's good if there is and it's good if there's not. There's no right or wrong. But you have the choice when you recognize that thought to either follow it with another thought or to let it come back, come home, come to space. So you will work with this and play with this in whatever way feels appropriate to you. And you are always free to listen to this again if it supports you, or to forget about it completely if it doesn't support you. <laughs> that was truly wonderful. You know, um, your voice is so inviting of the dissolving into beingness that... Uh, uh, I, I really love I love listening to that and and feeling that dissolving. Mm, thank you, thank you, Jonathan. Yes, you're here. <laughs> um, I do want to mention for people who want to get hold of you once again that you have a website gangaji.org, and you do monthly online satsangs and you have your own podcast being yourself which uh, i look forward to listening to i haven't uh heard that so i look forward to that and i want to thank our patreon supporters that make all this possible too mm -hmm. so if you want uh, to know how you can support the podcast go to patreon.com forward slash awareness explorers and for various levels of support you get lots of extra stuff and most important Keep this alive. I liked how, how you said, Gangaji, that uh, any, any approach, any technique can become religious versus experiential. And our job is to be with our direct experience. Yes, that's fresh. That's guaranteed fresh. I'm so happy to have met with both of you. It's such a privilege and such a joy. And yeah. yes, thank, thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. It, it is a privilege for us, too, and, and a joy. And I can't wait for our listeners to hear and see. <laughs> we always sign off with our listeners by giving them two words. Keep exploring. Keep exploring. Beautiful. I salute that. Thank you for listening to Awareness Explorers. To learn more, you can check out our website, at awarenessexplorers.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you would post a review. And please share our link on Facebook and with family and friends, because knowing yourself as awareness is the greatest gift you can give yourself or someone you love. Lose everything. You have to finally lose your enlightenment and lose your unenlightenment and see what's left.